Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace podcast. Each week, we explore a biblical passage or topic, offering insight and application and seeking to point us to hope and direction for our lives. We also have interactive questions for each podcast for individual reflection or for small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Today, we are going to look into one more Old Testament story before we move on to the Prodigal Son series of parables in the book of Luke. This week, we're going to observe the events surrounding David and Bathsheba. Biblical stories, as you know, are embedded with the Eastern cultural emphasis upon honor and shame and honor-shame concepts, which means there's a prominence placed upon proper community relationships, and it's really important to be in, how it, how it is important to be in good standing within your community and within that context. So to have honor, to show honor, and to not dishonor, these are really important aspects to life in these cultures. So with that reminder, as we've been talking about that here the past few weeks, we're going to turn to our story which this week begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'll read verses 1 through 4. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. And he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned her house. Well, we renoted in this the passage, it says it's in the spring of the year. It's the time of the year when kings go to battle, probably for, uh, for weather and climate reasons and such. I guess they preferred to battle in the springtime. Uh, but the end of this uh, passage says, but, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, first thing to note here is in Hebrew, the word order usually is in the Hebrew text, the verb, and then the subject. But here in the Hebrew text, we see it's the subject and then the verb. So this is a way that a writer can place emphasis on the subject, in this case, David. So just imagine as we go through this whole story, there's a spotlight on David, his name. David, it's highlighted. Another thing to note is uh, thinking about David in the past, you know, when he was dishonored by Nabal a couple of weeks ago, remember how Abigail had to interfere? Um, but when he was dishonored and insulted by Nabal, he and had 400 men, they rushed to do battle and destroy Nabal's household. What a warrior. And the, then there's David who brought 200 Philistine foreskins to King Saul uh, for his daughter Michael in marriage. And then there was the young David who slew Goliath the giant or even killed a lion and a bear, he mentioned, uh, as a shepherd. So David, he's a warrior. In fact, Second. 
uh, Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, just a few chapters before this incident, it was noted that also in time past, when Saul was king over us, the people were saying, you, David, were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. So David is the one who led the armies of Israel. But he's not doing that now. When the armies are out, and they're out involved in a battle, they're besieging a city, uh, David is back in Jerusalem. He's not acting honorably here as a king. So something's not quite right with how he usually is. Now the text then says that in the late afternoon, David got out of his bed. Um, and again, in those cultures in hotter weather, siestas might be common then in the, late, in the heat of the day. So he's kind of getting up from a nap. And he takes a stroll on his rooftop. Now the Young's literal translation says he's walking up and down the roof. New American Standard says he walked around on the roof, or one more, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says he strolled around. So the wording here uh, indicates that this is kind of random movement. He's kind of pacing and walking about, and as he is meandering about, he happens to see a beautiful woman bathing. And she's beautiful to behold, and he did behold. And so then he takes action. He inquires as to who this is. And notice when he asks who it is, the servant answers in the form of a question. <clears throat> this is, again, something to note in honor, shame type culture. He's going to say, is this not uh, Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And this way, it's not like they're a know-it-all and they know something the king doesn't know. It's just a way of, again, showing honor. Uh, in that culture. So uh, it's kind of like today, some honor and shame cultures, maybe you would say something like, even in today, you would say, uh, not, I missed the train. Nope. Rather, you would say, the train left without me. Again, this saving face is kind of always something that's prevalent. Well, now we see some things about Bathsheba as we set the stage here. David sees her, has inquires about her. Uh, what do we know about Bathsheba? Well, first, she's described as very beautiful to behold. Next, we see that she is the wife of Uriah and the daughter of Eliam, as the servant pointed out. David learned she's married to someone that he knew well. Uriah was one of his peers. And when David died a few chapters later in 2 Samuel 23, there's a roster of David's mighty and his valiant men. Uh, his 30, there's like 36 men listed as valiant and mighty men. And Uriah, the Hittite, is one of them, as is Eliam who is Bathsheba's father. So David knew her father. David knew Uriah, as they had been in wars together, battles together, and they were. Uh, this was indeed a noteworthy family. Bathsheba comes from a socially prominent family. It's also believed that her grandfather was Ahithophel from 2 Samuel 15, uh, 31 through 37. He's a counselor of King David, and he was renowned. He was known for his wisdom. Uh, 2 Samuel 16, 23 even pointed out when Ahithophel gave counsel, it was like the word of God itself, kind of how they perceived it. So if you combine all these, it would seem for sure that David would not dare. Surely he wouldn't take his close friend's wife, daughter, and granddaughter in such a way. Another thing we want to note about Bathsheba, not only that she was beautiful or that she was uh, um, the wife already of Uriah, who... Uh, and also who was a peer of David, he, who, whom he knew. And she was not only from a prominent family, well-known family, but she observed the law. She was a good Jewish girl. She was keeping purity regulations. Because we find out in verse 4 why she was taking that bath. It says that she was bathing herself, um, uh, for she was cleansed from her impurity, verse 4 says. 
And so the law required in that day that for women, when they finished their menstrual cycle, they were to have this ritual washing according to Leviticus 15. So we see that's what she's doing, and she's Torah observant. She's keeping the law. She's a faithfully bathing according to the law that speaks something of her spiritual condition and her good standing in the covenant. And uh, so this is why she's bathing, for a specific and legitimate purpose. And fifth, we'll also note about Bathsheba, she's, she's likely quite young, like a teen. Uh, one indication of that is she's married but not with children yet, so that would imply perhaps that she's younger. But also uh, in the next chapter, when we look at Nathan, we'll see what, what he's doing here in a minute. But he is going to describe like in a parable form, and uh, uh, he's going to refer to Bathsheba as a little ewe lamb. And he's also going to mention that Uriah loved her like a daughter. So Uriah is probably much older, as that was even common. Uh, he's a peer of David, maybe in his 40s, mid-40s, late 40s, and uh, Bathsheba would be perhaps then uh, a teenager, if, if not maybe 20 at the oldest. So we see Bathsheba then as a young, beautiful, law-observing woman from a prominent family, married to uh, her beloved Uriah, and uh, it's safe to assume, also to assume then that she will behave accordingly from within that context of who she is. Now, verse 4 describes the actions carried out by David. We see some key verbs. It says that David sent for her and David took her. Now, it's interesting because David sent messengers, plural, but then the verb switches to singular and took. So again, the writer is specifically pointing out who is seen as the one who took her is David. David sent for her and took her. Remember, the spotlight is on David. And her action is simply she came to him. Now Bathsheba goes to the king in obedience to the king. He is her superior. She is the inferior. David is her sovereign lord, humanly speaking, has great authority over her. In fact, a few verses later, uh, we'll see in a minute why, but David uh, sends for Uriah, her husband, and he came to him. Same wording. And this obedience that he has to the king, this is a good thing. He came to him. He's obedient to the superior authority. Now, as verse 4 continues, it then says, though, he lay with her because she was cleansed from impurity, and then she returned to her house. There's no account of any conversation here, no time for care or tenderness, certainly none for love. It's quick and then it's over. And then he's done with her, shaming her now even more and sending her away. He, he takes her and then shames her and sends her away even more. So he took advantage of his position and his authority over her. What was she to do? It is an ancient Me Too moment here. And it is the victimizer, David, not the victim, Bathsheba, who will be held accountable, as we shall see. And so Bathsheba returns to her own house, having been taken advantage of, used, and from verse 5, we find out, pregnant. She then sends messengers, just like David had initially sent messengers to her. She sends messengers to David to inform him of her pregnancy. I am pregnant. Very impersonal. She doesn't seem to try here to seek more face-to-face -face time or access to him like a starstruck child. No, no, no. Rather the opposite. In fact, at this point, David knows he's got a problem, and he's now going to begin to cover this up. And the first thing he thinks of is he's going to send for Uriah. So as the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child, 2 Samuel eleven six. then David sent to, sent to Joab, the 
field military commander, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah back to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked him how Joab was doing. And how are the people doing? And how is the war prospering? And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah departed from the king's house. And he also got a gift of food from the king that followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and didn't go on down to his own house where Bathsheba was. Why, can you imagine as he sends for Uriah and Uriah shows up, how phony that conversation must have been. You know, it's like, hey, we're going to have a little chat, some afternoon tea. So how's it going? How's the battle? You know, how did so-and-so do? And is, you know, so-and-so any faster? And how's your bunion, Uriah? And here, take some of this good food. Go home, wash your feet. Spend some time with your wife. Now, um, there's not little, uh, like, high levels of privacy in these cultures. The palace, it's a bustling place. Remember, though David wasn't out to war, all of his wives are still at the palace. All of his servants are there. It's like daily routines and everything going on here at this place. So there's many servants, and servants most likely know what happened, and perhaps a majority of the palace is aware uh, that Bathsheba was escorted in at night and sent away and so forth. And So for a king to do something like this even was kind of culturally not considered shame at least in other nations around Israel. So David's maybe, you know, kind of thinking that way. But when she's pregnant, well, then he's caught. And now it becomes an issue of honor and he has to cover it. So Uriah just goes on home, sleeps with his, does not, uh, and sleeps with his wife rather, and all is covered up and okay. Oh, if only. David's honor would have been held then. But that's not what Uriah did. He doesn't play along. He's likely aware of what had happened and what David is up to. So he doesn't go home. He remains in the public eye with the servants and sleeps at David's door so everyone knows he didn't go home. So David says, why didn't you go home? Then in verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 10 and 12, 11. And Uriah's called for another visit and he answers, I didn't go. And David answers, uh, David, he's having this conversation in private, he and Uriah. And when he asks him, Uriah actually shames David with his answer. And he does it indirectly. And he says, this conversation is private, like I said, but he, he says to David, the ark and Israel and Judah, all of them are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. So he's saying everyone and everything, the ark, everyone is where they are supposed to be. Hint, hint except David. The commander in the field is Joab. Hint, hint, not David. But then Uriah says, shall then, uh, they're all in the open fields, shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? Oh, as you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. You see, Uriah almost certainly knows. And what position is he in? He can't accuse the king of adultery. That could cost him his life. And he doesn't actually have evidence, maybe, or anything strong. And he doesn't want to accuse Bathsheba uh, because he knows that that wasn't her fault, most likely there at all. And in fact, he also doesn't have any uh, evidence. And there was some some, uh, things that he could do according to Jewish law, but that was all very unfavorable. So he's very wisely giving, shaming David here in subtle ways and he says i'm never going down there as i live as my soul as your soul lives well that night david has uh 
has your eye over and it says he made him drunk so even in this david's guilty of <laughs> sin of others he made him drunk and uh he thinks surely Uriah will go home now. But again, Uriah doesn't. He remains in the public eye. He sleeps again, presumably at the door. So to David, Uriah, really in his thinking now, he's getting probably a little angered because Uriah has shamed him by his answer and now by his refusal to go home and be with his wife. So David feels he can take it up a few notches. So with a growing honor issue at stake and to cover this up, he gives Uriah a note and tells him to go back to the fields of battle and give that note to Joab. And so he wrote in that note, 2 Samuel eleven fifteen. in that letter, he said, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and then retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. So Uriah is going to be set up for an ambush, and he, as well as others with him, they will die. And so David has Uriah murdered. Well, 2 Samuel 11, verse 26, we drop up ahead to that part. Uh, when David, when Uriah then uh, was murdered, was killed, uh, then the word, word gets back and Bathsheba hears. And we read in 11, 2 Samuel eleven twenty six, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But... The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So one more verb that David does is again he sent. But notice uh, he sent for Bathsheba, but notice she's referred to as the wife of Uriah. And when she found out her husband died, she's still identified as the wife of Uriah. That's how the scriptures point her out. Quickly, David quickly then sent for Bathsheba after her mourning period was over. And the word sent is actually a Hebrew word that means uh, like collected or add to a collection. He collected her. So impersonal. And again, it's spotlighting his abuse of royal power. He adds to his collection, makes her his wife, and now he has covered his sin. At every step, David did what was typical for a Mediterranean king at that time in his cultures around him in a situation like this. So on this level, this horizontal level, he would not have a guilty conscience because honor was preserved. And he kind of got away with it. But then the passage ends, the script, the path chapter ends, but... The thing that David had done, it was wrong. And it was wrong before the Lord. And notice it's the thing that David had done. Remember, spotlight on David. This thing belongs to David. Bathsheba's a victim here, not a co-conspirator. Well, some time goes by, actually at least nine months, because then the baby is born. David has covered it up well enough. Bathsheba now is his wife. The baby can be born. No big scandal now, apparently. And Uriah, he's gone. And David has maintained his honor, so he's not maybe sensing personal guilt. He's kind of gotten through this, and through honor and shame, cultural norms, he's okay, but not before God, because then, chapter 12 begins, God directly intervenes. Then God sent Nathan, loyal, prophet, faithful Nathan, to David, and he's got a story for him. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, David, there were two men in one city. The rich One was rich and the other was poor, and the rich man ex had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man, he had nothing, nothing except one little ewe lamb, 
which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children, and it ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock, the rich man did, and in a show of hospitality. He didn't take a lamb from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's only lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And Nathan says, you are the man. Boy, what boldness, huh? You are the man. Because David's the king. David could have Nathan killed right there on the spot. <laughs> you are the man. So the parable works. David is, sees his sin. The you lamb, the little lamb that was taken was Bathsheba. And the man who had her was Uriah, the poor man. David, you took her, you're the man, and you have dishonored the innocent Uriah and Bathsheba. David admits, I have sinned. Second Samuel 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. However, by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also who is born to you shall surely die. There will be consequences. David immediately admits, I have sinned. Oh, more. he now sees things. He sees this was definitely wrong before the Lord. And these consequences are laid out in the next few verses. The Lord tells David through Nathan that there's really going to be three consequences for his sin. One, you're going to have a lot of adversity against you from your own house. You're going to have rebellion from within. That was fulfilled by Absalom and then even others. And secondly, there's going to be one who will lay with your wives, David, in the very place on your rooftop where you saw Bathsheba right there. Someone's going to lay with your wives. That's going to be great dishonor, great dishonor. And thirdly, as was mentioned, the child that will now come nine months, uh, that was already born, that child will die. So... David is honest, and he saw his sin. He was wrong. He had dishonored Uriah and Bathsheba and the Lord, as well as his royal house. And humility now rushes in. David is now honest. And Psalm 51 is a wonderful passage where David writes uh, beautifully of this time and his coming to grips with how he had sinned before the Lord. He asks to the Lord, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I have sinned. I am wrong now. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Not his salvation, but of God's salvation, the joy of it. The joy of your salvation. He knew it was not all over. David knew that he wasn't finished. He knew the Lord relationally. He knew the Lord personally. He knew of the Lord's love. He knew of God's patience and grace and mercy. And he knew he belonged to him. And so what a statement of grace. Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. Even this sin, even sexually abusing a young married woman and committing adultery and then killing her husband, murder, and then thinking it was okay in this cultural honor, shame kind of setting. And goes on for months, almost nine months or more. And now everything's been taken care of by God. The sin is gone. 
as far as the east from the west, so far God has removed your sin from you. David himself writes that in Psalm 103, verse 12. He knows. David knew this, and he is persuaded and by faith in the Lord's forgiveness. And the issue here is the joy of his daily walk with the Lord. This relationship that he's had with the Lord had turned dry and had become uh, dull because he just was so insensitive and not being honest. And now God has shown him he has sinned, and now he was desiring a joy of that relationship again. Well, indeed, the child did die. And again, Bathsheba suffers another loss. She's lost her honor when David took her. She's lost by David. She's lost her husband by David. She's lost her child now, her firstborn, because of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, a little, uh, a little bit later, verse 24, we, well, a little, or we would read then that David's comfort, he then... Uh, um, he then was able to lay, had to take a, a Bathsheba as his wife, and they had another. He laid down. He comforted her by laying with her again, and she has a son. Notice his comfort is not stated as anything emotional or loving, uh, but the son, the son now that is born, is noted as the Lord loved him, and his name, Solomon. And so we begin to see how the Lord restores Bathsheba's honor with the birth of Solomon and moving forward. Commentators have long stated how David's life builds and his honor builds and his status builds to this point in his life. And then this sin with Bathsheba, this is where everything begins to descend. Think of stairs going up, this incident, stairs going down for David. But for Bathsheba, she is brought down by this sin that David does upon her, and we'll see that her stairs will ascend just the opposite of David's coming out of this. The Lord builds back her honor and her life begins to ascend. So cl closing applications. Let's see this about, we've mentioned this about Bathsheba, how God preserves Bathsheba. You know, we learn from her how to weather trials. Boy, she was taken advantage of. She lost her husband. She lost her first child, all of them unjustly. Three significant losses, one right after another. It wasn't a good year at all. Could have been really bitter toward David. Could have really resented him. She could have really turned away from God and been bitter toward him. This was a raw deal, but she does not. We don't read of that anywhere. We know that actually, if anything, we see that she's faithful. We see her story begins with her faithfulness as we see that she is washing according to ritual law, according to the Torah. But even then, she's faithful also to Uriah. I mean, they're a beloved relationship, as we see from the parable of the Lamb and so forth. And she's noted as Uriah's wife all the, from then on, pretty much. But she also is even faithful to David. Because you see, some chapters later, by the time we... <clears throat> get to first kings we see that uh, many people had left david he's an old man now much older and there's been rebellion in his household and so many have left and gone astray and part of various rebellions and the ones that are there and not seen at the end of his life are those who are known for their loyalty to david like nathan is there and some other of his strong men are there and guess who else is there bathsheba bathsheba is there and there she is at his side at that point for amongst those who are loyal to David. You know, another thing that Bathsheba is uh, preserved in is the Lord allows her to become the mother of the next king, Solomon. 
Solomon, you know, the king who was provided in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, it was promised that this king, David, would have a king son that would come after him, that would build the temple, and then from David, though, ultimately would be the that line and that uh, Davidic uh, covenant would be a throne that would last forever, and we know that's Jesus Christ, the prophecy of him coming as the king. Bathsheba is the mother of Solomon. And notice the record Solomon leaves of his mother. He tells of how she instructed him in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 2, how he remembered how his mother instructed him. He has her, his mother, uh, put upon him his wedding day crown. She made a crown for him and puts it upon him on his wedding day, a place of honor, and she places that upon him in the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 11. Solomon wrote much of Proverbs, and in fact, he uses the word mother 15 times in the book of Proverbs, every time showing how the mother deserved respect and was to be spared dishonor from her children. And then amazingly, in 1 Kings chapter 2.19, when she comes to ask him a request, kind of the story behind it, but uh, he says, come mother, and, and he actually, before she asks him his request, he makes another throne next to his and puts her on a throne at his right hand, the very place of honor. And she sits with him when she asks him this question. And even one more thing, Proverbs 31 is written a psalm that is uh, of Proverbs. That chapter is, says it's written by King Lemuel, uh, and these are he's sharing words from his mother. Well, who is King Lemuel? The name means belonging to God, and there's no historical record at all, none for him. Where did he come from? Who is he? So the Jewish rabbi tradition has this as a name, kind of a pet name, for Solomon. And if that's true, then Proverbs 31 about even ultimately which comes in two forms of poems though a virtuous woman part is the second one would have been from Bathsheba she's sharing these things there's at least a chance then that the virtuous woman and those truths come from the perspective of Bathsheba now you add all these up and you at least will find this one of the strongest mother-son relationships in the scripture he honors her he, 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 she's with him, he's with her, he, he, they, they, she, he's learned from her, etc. And he puts her at the, his right hand. But here's a final note of honor. She's listed in the genealogy of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 1, 6, it talks about the who begat who, who begat who. Her final honor is she is shown in the bloodline to Christ. It says in verse 6, Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And it's the Holman Christian Standard Bible has says, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. So here the text is one more time just pointing out the spotlight is on David in that incident. That was not right. And yet the grace of God is right here, and that child is going to be all the way part of the genealogy for Jesus Christ himself. And here it's recorded for all to see this positive legacy. Bathsheba's stairs definitely ascend. Another observation though is God hears the other side of the story, the seedy side of those who are in power and those who are abusing their power. There's another side uh, of them, and God knows that side. 
because with what is written, we must summarize it. You know, this way, the story of Bathsheba is a story of control and domination. It's a story of willful disobedience David had to God and silence voices and so forth. And she had a life. She had a husband. She loved her husband. It sounds like everything was very nice. And then, boom, just like that, it was all taken from her and not by her choice. So she sees David in a totally different light. We see then from her a king, the story, the, a king who rests by day, who walks upon the roof at evening tide. We see him, the king, call a woman to his bedroom who cannot by law or culture resist his advances. Then this king plays out a terrible and elaborate strategy to cover over the sin and finally it culminates in the murder of her husband Uriah and then David collects Bathsheba into his house as another wife. Maybe you are connected to someone who's abusive or taking advantage or intimidating. And you see the ugly side of that coin, the other side. Just know that God sees the other side and he's there. He was there for Bathsheba. He has, he has been there and, and has built her honor and has been faithful to her. And you can see that she sees that and knows that. But you know what? God knows the other side of the abuser too, of the sinner. And he's going to work powerfully there and cleanse in that situation and be restoring. Everyone should have cause to rejoice then in that. Look what our God can do and how he does it. Another observation is how God overrides all the norms and standards, codes of honor, or any other human custom that does not square with his ultimate truth and reality. It might seem culturally okay, but it's not okay if it violates the word of God. And God said this thing displeased the Lord. Another observation is God preserves David, too. He has grace for the sinner. Amazing. It's so encouraging. There's consequences for his sin, yes, but David is never out of God's love. In fact, Acts 13.22, God summarizes David's life and he says, I have found David a man after his own heart, after my own heart. David's a man after God's own heart. Wow, meditate on that. Again, what stunning grace. David had a relationship with God. He desired God. He had his dark chapters in life. This is certainly a low moment. This isn't the, the shining light that David wanted everyone to see, but God has preserved it. But he was still loved by God. You see, friends, you are more than the worst thing or things you have done. And grace is constantly available, constantly there for us. Romans 5.20 reminds us where sin abounded, grace abounded much more grace greater than all our sin. We sing it. Do we believe it? David did not lose his relationship with the Lord, but he had drifted away from it. And in those times of fellowship and of learning and of praising God that he had when he was younger, when he was writing these psalms, he had a wonderful relationship. All of that was still, that, that, uh, that past history was still with him. David wrote beautiful poetry about God, sang songs for him, walked with him. He is with him. Uh, he says that David, David is with him now because he's the one who wrote, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, 6. David knew he was saved. What security? And so he's saying, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I've blown it. God, you are so gracious and so forgiving so merciful and he comes to him by faith and david leaves a realistic legacy his legacy is not a bold headline with his sins no that's a bold headline of he's a man after my own heart it's about god's love and david's faith and his relationship with his god that's the essence of life that's what it's about what legacy 
do we see then that David's leaving a sinner saved by grace? A sinner who loved his God, a sinner who was restored and tasted the joy of God's salvation again and again. A sinner who saw God as all that he had. Who do I have in heaven but you, he writes. He, uh, a sinner who drew near to God and who tasted to see that God was good. You see, friends, there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is joy even in that relationship again because there is Jesus Christ and his love. Because there's a God who came to seek and to save the lost. Because God is wanting a relationship with us, with you, with each of us, with all of us. A personal one, a real one, a vibrant one. And it's there and it's available. And it's by faith. As we believe on him and be saved for the first time from sin's penalty, it's by faith we enter into relationship. And then if we are saved like David was, it's repeated again and again by faith. And we enjoy fellowship as we walk by faith and we trust and assume and know his forgiveness and goodness. What about Uriah? How'd things work out for him? You know, it seems like he got just a raw deal, but you know what? His faithfulness to his wife and, and, and just not uh, a covering for David is written down, and that's, uh, his, on, his honor is maintained in that passage, and he did what he was, the Lord wanted him to do. My thought is this. If you saw him in heaven, do you think he's going to say, oh, I have so many regrets. I should have. I and then remember this, lastly, God is pursuing his own. <laughs> You know, David, God pursued David with Nabal before his sin. Nabal, was, he was about to come with 400 men and just wipe them out, and he's really mad and passionate, and Abigail's able to intervene, and he listens, and God was able to intervene before, because that's where David's heart was. He was more sensitive at that point. Here, God has to pursue David after. He's more dull, but he does pursue, and he sends Nathan, and at the right time, and in God's only wisdom, uh, this is where... David can see, I have sinned. And friends, the hounds of heaven are coming after us. When we're a wayward believer and we're out of it, God is pursuing, he is desiring us to once again walk in fellowship with him. I remember talking with a wayward believer once who had been astray for years, and he said, you know, but I thought about it every single day. You can't get him out of your mind. And so we might as well just say, Lord, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Turn again to him in faith. Respond to his awesome grace. Know that he has put away your sin. As far as the east is from the west, he's removed your sin. How has he done that? Through Christ. Through his willingness to come and take our place on the cross and absorbing our shame and enduring the consequence of death and that separation from a holy God and after dying for us and dying for you, he rose again and is alive and he's offering you life and we can be restored to honor through him as he, we, he gives us life by grace through his death on the cross. Will you throw yourself at his mercy and trust him now? Believe on him and you will never perish, but have eternal life. And if you're saved, believe on him again, know his truth, realize his forgiveness and his grace, and you may walk and enjoy him on a daily basis. Something for all of us in this story, I hope you are encouraged. Let's pray. Father, we do come amazed at how you work in the lives of your people. They're not perfect, we're not perfect, but your faithfulness is, and your truth is. And we see how you maintain your honor and you restore even honor to us as we trust you and what you've provided. Thank you for how good you are and thank you for the story. May we all be encouraged in some way. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, until next time, remember where the Spirit of God is, there is always 